Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome, guys. I am joined by a new friend, Emily Anhalt, and I am so excited because she is a clinical psychologist and then co-founder of an organization called COA, which we're going to talk all about. It's a gym for your mental health. So welcome, first of all. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm just so interested in this because I'm a therapist. This is a podcast about mental health and therapy. And I have never really heard much about this term emotional and mental health fitness. So can we just like talk about that and what COA is from the beginning? Absolutely. So COA is a gym for mental health, and we are working to make your mental health care practice as modern, accessible, and proactive as your physical health practice. And we do this through therapist-led emotional fitness classes and one-on-one therapy matchmaking, and it's all really rooted in community. This concept of emotional fitness, it, it is a newer term that we coined to describe this ongoing proactive practice of strengthening your mental and emotional health. So what it does is it helps build the internal tools that we need to face and move through the inevitable ups and downs of life. And the curriculum at COA is based on research that I did a number of years ago, where I interviewed a hundred psychologists and a hundred entrepreneurs about what makes someone emotionally healthy. What does that look like? What does that feel like? What do those people do? What do they not do? And out of this research came what we call the seven traits of emotional fitness. These are the seven things that people can do every day to work toward better and stronger mental and emotional health. It's sort of like if you think about physical fitness, you should be sleeping well, eating healthy, exercising. You want to do leg day sometimes and cardio other times. This is the emotional health equivalent of that. And those seven traits are self-awareness, empathy, mindfulness, curiosity, playfulness, resilience, and communication. One, I'm very, very interested in this because I also work in the fitness industry. And something that I see often on both sides, I would say mental health and physical health, this like 
need to only work on things if there's like a crisis. In physical health, I hear this all the time, like I'll change my diet or the way I approach food if I have diabetes or if I get diagnosed with high cholesterol or if my disordered eating might not matter unless it's like a dis- an actual diagnosed eating disorder or my anxiety isn't that big of a deal until I have a panic attack. So I guess for me, it's so interesting that, but let me say it this way, I can convince people easier that, hey, these physical things actually do end up playing a part in the longevity of your physical health, like movement and diet and all of, and sleep and all of that kind of stuff. And that's one of the reasons I created this podcast because I was like, we all should be talking about some of this stuff, but it's harder for me to convince somebody or get somebody on my team with the idea that, hey, this stuff is affecting your mental health, whether you feel it or not, whether you have panic attacks or not, this is affecting you and how you go about your life. So what's that been like for you? Because this is exactly what we need to do that. Yeah. I mean, you're describing something that is really true in our culture, which is that mental health care is really reactive. We're made to feel like we have to be completely falling apart to have permission or to deserve support. But just like what you said, that's like saying, you know what, I'll do cardio once I get diagnosed with heart disease. It's like, yeah, at that point, you've lost a lot of opportunity to prevent a lot of the things that you're now having to fix. And while mental health struggles are something we're all going to face throughout our life, no matter what, I have found that people who prioritize their emotional fitness actually do keep themselves from having to deal with certain things. And I think a lot of our struggles in adulthood are a result of not being given the space and the tools and the resources and the support and the permission to lean toward our emotional lives when we were younger. And now there's this buildup. And so to me, emotional fitness is like getting your reps in, building your internal resilience so that not only can you face tough things, but you actually might prevent tough things. Okay. So in my head now, I'm wondering, what does that look like? Because I hear this too. I hear, because I'm like therapies for everybody. And I love that you said that it's reactive. I don't know. I've heard that like in a sentence like that, but I hear all the time, like, yeah, I would go to therapy, but I have nothing to talk about. It's so funny. I will show there's a couple like layers here. First of all, the idea of I have nothing to talk about. Part of that is the voice telling us that unless we're falling apart, we don't have anything worth saying. So that's part of it. Right. But the other thing is, I think what we don't always realize is that the things we most need to talk about tend to be a couple layers down. They don't feel so accessible to us in every moment. I'll have patients come in and sit down and say, I don't know what we're going to talk about today. And by the end of the session, they're in all kinds of really profound, important, tender places that they wouldn't have known to ask for at the beginning, but that just having that safe space to explore leads them there. And so I would say, don't listen to that idea that you don't have enough to talk about because we all have lots to talk about. I mean, I was in therapy three times a week for eight years. I did a classic analytic course of therapy. And six years in, I was still having my mind blown by things that I didn't even know I needed to think or, you know, feel through. So give it a try. You'll you'll be surprised is what I would say to people with that worry. Here's the other thing too, that we sometimes walk into sessions with like, we have no idea. And then all of a sudden we're talking about this stuff that is like mind blowing and changing the way we think, feel, act. But sometimes it's just nice to like be there. Yes. And like sometimes sessions aren't like that. And I think that's a misconception too of like, 
every therapy session you have to have to be worth it has to be this like mind-blowing experience and sometimes it's just about like having a space to be seen and that's literally it like period 100% i you know the the sessions where you do have those big epiphanies mm-hmm. or something earth-shattering does happen those sessions are a result of all of the seemingly unproductive sessions that came before you know we have to build toward those things it's I think about it almost like when you're farming, there are seasons where you reap what you've sown, but there's also seasons where you have to just let the ground kind of rejuvenate and and get ready to be planted again. And there's seasons where you're waiting patiently for things to grow slowly. And similarly in therapy, we have to give ourselves the space and time to build toward change because if change were easy, you would have done it already. I don't think we give ourselves enough credit that the kind of change that we want, even just the small changes in life that gently lead us toward where we want to go, those are difficult and complicated changes to make. And we have to create that space for that to happen. So now I'm wondering too, when people are like, okay, I'm into this. I want to go to a gym for my mental health because I like the gym for my actual health or that seems interesting. What does that actually look like? So our classes are really experiential. We knew that just being talked at for 90 minutes, it's not going to create the deep change that I think we're all looking for. You have to practice just like going to the gym and hearing a lecture about how to lift weights correctly is not going to be the same as actually doing it. So in our classes, what we do is we explain some kind of psychological concept that we feel is really relevant to the trait that you're learning. So self-awareness, resilience, whatever trait you're in. And then you're actually going to practice a framework for that psychological concept. So you're going to be in breakout rooms, you're going to be taking polls, you're going to be talking to each other in the chat, and you're actually going to work your way through it like it's an exercise, sort of like someone showing you around the gym and saying, here's how you use this machine, here's how you use this machine, go ahead, try it, and then you do it, and someone's like, oh, you know what, I would tweak this a little bit. So all of our instructors are licensed therapists, and even though the classes are not therapy, it's this opportunity to have a therapeutic experience and have someone say, yes, I think you're really getting it, but what if you thought about it this way? And by the end of the class, not only do you have an insight shift, you know, a perspective shift, you also have this really concrete, actionable exercise that you can bring into your life and practice all the time. Plus you have this community of people who are also working on their emotional fitness. Like the metaphor I use a lot is when you go to the gym, you have to lift your own weights. No one can lift your weights for you but it's a hell of a lot easier to lift weights when other people are around who are also lifting weights and who can spot you and who can show you how far you've come and who can give you something to look forward to, you know? So we say emotional fitness, it's an individual journey, but it's a communal pursuit. Okay. I was about to say something about that because I I mean, I just like going with this metaphor of like the actual gym too. I teach group fitness classes and I am a big proponent of group fitness and the the real like thing that I love about it isn't like what it does to change your body and what it looks like it's that like you're creating friendships and experiences and you're seeing people and you're making eye contact with people and you are cheering people on and like that's the thing I don't know if you feel this but I feel this deeply that before the pandemic people would ask me like what do you specialize in and like technically I specialize in eating disorders, but I got to a point where I was like, honestly, I thought I specialized in eating disorders and body image, but it feels like I specialize in loneliness. Mm. Like when we get down to the root of it, everybody is lonely and everybody is wanting more connection. And 
I even said yesterday in a session to somebody, I was like, I don't even know if this is appropriate to say to you, but I've had, I said this to my client, I was like, I've had like seven people this week talk about the same thing you're talking about to me, but none of y'all are talking about it to each other. Mm. So you all think that you're alone and you all think that you're the only one with this issue. And she was like, I'm not looking for this to be fixed because I know it can't be fixed. But when I express this issue to somebody else and they don't know what to say to me not because they can't fix it but because they're like I can't relate to that that's what is painful not the actual thing I'm struggling with and I was like but everybody's talking about this Mm. (laughs) to me to me so I don't know if you feel like that before the pandemic I think the pandemic has like grossly exacerbated that issue and then we pull in social media and that sometimes it becomes a whole other issue because then we're not going outside of our homes sometimes or we think we're connecting but we're not so for you having this place where even if it is virtual I am connecting to people and seeing people's faces and I'm in this with somebody to me that's one of the most exciting parts of this whole idea oh yeah we've had so many people just say how relieving it was just to see other people grappling with the same things or a different variation of that thing, or even something totally different, but just seeing that other people have their own things that they're struggling with is really validating. And we have all kinds of really lovely stories. One time we did a little series on living alone during the pandemic. So it's for people, you know, really in the height of it, when you couldn't really see anyone, we put together a class and there were two women in their seventies who joined the class from opposite sides of the country. And the emotional fitness instructor put them in in breakout rooms together. And they reached out to us months later to say that they still meet every week to talk about how they're doing, to keep each other company. And there's just something so nice about finding peers who not only are going through what you're going through, but also feel motivated to work on themselves. Because working on yourself in and of itself can be lonely. If you don't feel like everyone around you is committed to that as well, it can feel like a big emotional burden. So something I say a lot is, In most of our relationships, we tend to say, I'll take care of you if you'll take care of me. But we at COA actually think it should be more like, I'll take care of me for you if you'll take care of you for me. And at COA, you're going to find other people who are doing that and who can join you in that pursuit. I love that. And I just do individual therapy and I wish I could do group therapy. I used to do that every day. And there's something special about it that like we can have all the insight and all the aha moments but it, it's something different when you're doing it with some, somebody else that is not your therapist hey guys cat here and i have something very important to talk to you guys about now i know you're used to hearing me talk about therapy and how important it can be for you and how transformative it can be for you in your life but if you're somebody who's tried therapy and it just hasn't done the trick or you just need a little extra boost i think I've found the next best thing. And the next best thing might just be Cozy Earth and their bamboo sheets and their bamboo pajamas. It feels like you are stepping into a buttery, cozy, warm, and cool hug all at the same time. And that's just their pajamas. Don't even get me started on their sheets. As soon as I touched them, I said, okay, we're changing the sheets right now. And the bonus is they come in this really cute travel tote so you can take your sheets with you wherever you go. 
Elevate your summer getaway with Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding and loungewear, ensuring the comfort of home wherever you roam. We're all in luck because you can discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code UNEED at checkout to get 35% off. Yes, 35% off. And let them know that we sent you Unique Therapy after you check out. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like a recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. I have a question though about self-awareness because I hear that word all the time now. I don't know if that it I'm really hearing it more. I'm just noticing more, but I'm hearing more about self-awareness and I'm also hearing a lot of people talk about how they have self-awareness that quite possibly don't because since that is one of the main parts of this, I I want to talk about like for you what is self-awareness and how do you know if you have it? How do you know if you don't? And then what are ways that you've seen help build it? Sure. So the way I define self-awareness is self-awareness is an ongoing pursuit of understanding our emotional strengths, struggles, triggers, and biases. And you're right at pointing out the irony that we don't know what we don't know. So self-awareness isn't about knowing everything about ourselves. It's about knowing that there are things that we probably aren't aware of and feeling committed to leaning toward those things and being open to those things. So you know how they say, like, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know, the better you are in a subject, the more you realize just how much there is to it that you'll never understand. That's how I feel about self-awareness. I feel like the more I work on seeing myself, the more I realize how much there is that I haven't seen yet, or that might be hard to see. And self-awareness is hard because if we don't know something about ourselves at this point in our life, it's probably because it's uncomfortable to know. So we lean away from those things instead of toward them. So self-awareness is saying, you know what, I'm going to let myself be a little uncomfortable because I want to peek into those dark corners and understand how I might be standing in my own way or how I might be contributing to the things that are frustrating in my life or how I might be taking away from the relationships that I care about, things like that. Okay. I'm going to try to quote you on this. This really stuck out to me. If there's something that I don't know, it's probably because it's uncomfortable to know. Right. Okay. So for some people, they might hear that and they might be like, Okay, so like, I don't want to touch that. 
Like if it's uncomfortable, I don't want to touch it because I relate to that so much of like self-awareness sometimes sucks. Like it just is like, oh, I know that I do that. Or I was talking on a podcast I was on last week with one of my friends. We were talking about feedback and like the power of feedback and how like sometimes we won't give it to people or we don't want to give it to people because we don't want to make them uncomfortable. And I was like, yeah. And we can also look at it as a gift. Like if I'm giving somebody feedback, it's probably because I'm letting them in on something they're not aware of. And I use the example, really low scale example of the human that produces and edits this podcast. His name is Houston. He's amazing at his job. And since he listens to me talk a lot, he picks up on things that I do. And he gave me feedback once and he was like, do you know that you say this? And I think it was, he reminded me what it was. Oh, every time I'm changing the subject, when I'm doing an episode by myself, I'll say like, with that being said, and then he's like, you've said that like 20 times an episode. And I was like, oh, and a part of me cringed because I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't aware that I did that. Had no self-awareness of that. And knowing it, it was almost a little bit embarrassing Like I felt like a little bit of shame, but then I was like, well, thank you. Cause now I can work on that and you can edit it out in a podcast. But if I go speak somewhere, people are going to be like, oh my gosh, that's so annoying. Can she stop saying that? Yes. And so I give that example and it's not, it's a low stakes example, but I am just curious, like maybe from your experience as a therapist or in COA, like how do we encourage people to move into the self-awareness realm because I think a lot of people want to like I said earlier they want to like because it's a great trait right I'm self-aware they want to hold on to that and they want to claim it you're saying but they don't actually sometimes really want to experience it because it's uncomfortable right some part of them doesn't want to experience it okay But there's a reason one of our other traits is mindfulness, which we define as becoming more comfortable being uncomfortable. I think that on the other side of discomfort is everything we want in life. So much of what we want is only not available to us because of the discomfort we'd have to withstand to move toward it. So similarly with the example you gave, it's perfect because you weren't aware of this vocal tick, which we all have. Some people say, um, you know, that kind of thing. You weren't aware of it, but other people were aware of it. And so in the moment when you went from not knowing it to knowing it, you were uncomfortable. But if you can get past that moment, what you gain is agency, agency to make a change. And now suddenly you can change something that will positively affect you in all kinds of ways. And Likely, it's not going to be as uncomfortable, you know, a year from now as it is now, but you will have made this profound change. And so the message I want to put out there is people can handle more discomfort than they give themselves credit for. And if they can stick with it, then through that door of discomfort is this entire room or even world of opportunity and possibility for what they can do with their lives. I am obsessed with that, that like that gives us agency, like you're like putting all these light bulbs in my head, but it's reminded me of another conversation I had with somebody about how social media controls us. And the conversation was important because it was bringing self-awareness to our behaviors. And it was like all about reminding us that we do have power to make choices. But when we are consumed with social media, sometimes we don't have that. And so it was about getting the agency back. Yeah. And I love that idea because mindfulness so often people are like, I don't want to practice mindfulness. I don't want to do a mindful exercise. I don't want to do any of that. I don't want to do any of that. That's uncomfortable. But what mindfulness is doing is giving us the opportunity for agency in our lives. Yes. It's like so much of what we do in life is in service of avoiding discomfort. 
But what people don't realize is often the things they do to avoid discomfort actually end up creating more discomfort yeah. for them. Yeah. So if instead we could get comfortable just leaning into that discomfort in the first place, we suddenly have all these new options because we're not only looking for the option that gets us out of the discomfort the quickest, we're now looking at all of the possibilities and deciding which is actually the choice I want to make in this moment. And just to give an example that uh, probably a lot of people can relate to, because that avoidance thing I think is important. I'm this way. When I have a lot to do, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but when I have a lot to do or something scary, like something that I'm not like uh, well-versed in, like um, let's say my taxes, (laughs) like doing stuff like that, like that's overwhelming to me because it's a lot of stuff I don't understand and there's fear in it. Am I going to do something wrong? Did I do something wrong? And so what I do is I avoid it. So I avoid doing it. I put it off. I wait to the last minute. And so I think that's helping me because then I don't have to deal with my anxiety. But in the end, then it's like April 13th and my anxiety is through the roof. And I've actually like made a lot of mistakes because I wasn't proactive. And so it makes it worse. You've you've given a perfect example of the kind of emotional push-up, as we call it, that you might do in one of our mindfulness classes. So you might be asked to think of an example of something that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. So let's say it's doing taxes. And then you would be tasked with thinking, what do I tend to do to avoid the discomfort? So it sounds like for you, the answer is I put them off. I pretend they don't exist. I tell myself I'll do them later. And then you start to think, okay, how could that actually be creating more problems for me? Which you also just said, you know, at the last minute, it's harder. You're going to make more stakes, less time to reach out for support. Right. And so then we think, what could we do instead of avoiding the discomfort? What are the shock absorbers we can put in place? So when you know it's time to do your taxes, instead of saying, all right, I'm just going to put do them later. Can we say, you know what, instead, I'm going to write a list of three things that I'm really worried about. And I'm going to reach out to someone who is really good about taxes and ask them if they would just keep me company. I'm just going to take a slightly different path when I'm uncomfortable instead of avoiding. And now you've completely opened up all of these new options for yourself of how to deal with this tough thing. And if we learn how to do this in all parts of our life, all the little pockets that we have discomfort in, it's just amazing how much more agency we gain in the direction our life takes. Yeah. I And I love that you could put that in an example for what that would look like in your program too. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. 
And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. I wonder too, I don't know if there's an answer to this question. I might just be talking, but I wonder what it is about discomfort that makes us so, this might be like an existential who knows what question, but like, what is it about discomfort that makes us so uncomfortable? Does that question even make sense? No, it totally does. And I guess I'd say, I mean, I think there's the truth that uncomfortable is uncomfortable, so we want to avoid it. But I think if anyone examines their life, they'll see that there are some types of discomfort that they're more comfortable with and some types of discomfort that they're less comfortable with. So for example, I have a friend who is a fitness buff and he can push himself to really extreme levels of physical discomfort. And his mind just doesn't have alarm bells going off. He doesn't think, oh, I'm in danger. I need to do something about this. He's just gotten comfortable being that type of uncomfortable because he knows as if he keeps pushing through it, he's going to get stronger. Whereas if you ask him to have a difficult conversation with a colleague, he might be like, oh, no, 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 that that would be too much. And really, it's it's the same thing happening inside of us. We have just tagged meaning to certain types of discomfort. And in my experience as a therapist, you can usually connect some dots between what type of discomfort were you supported in withstanding growing up and what types of discomfort were you told are really dangerous and that you should run from. Like if you grew up in a family that didn't let you feel your feelings, then you might not think that it's possible to withstand the discomfort of feelings. So learning about that in ourselves, again, gives us more agency about pushing against it a little and reminding ourselves, no, you know what? I can handle this. It feels hard, but I can do it. I'm going to keep going. Which, I mean, speaks to the unknown and then speaks to like narratives and stories because I'm thinking about, well, what kind of discomfort am I more apt to be like run away from and run into and even things like somebody might feel really comfortable having a confrontation with an employer or like uh, negotiating pay or something like that somebody might be like yeah I can do that but then they can't tell their partner that they feel ignored or left out or abandoned you know so where I might be the opposite of that person Right. And it's all about like, okay, well, what was normalized and what are the stories? Like, 
I, now I'm having this image of like somebody might be really afraid of this is, might be a weird example but like somebody might be really uncomfortable with the dark like afraid of the dark but it's because like they left the hall light on until they were 18 years old because they had the story that if the hall light was not on then something bad was going to happen so they're afraid of the dark where somebody might have slept in the pitch black since they were out of the womb and so they don't have a discomfort in that you're describing how mental health is not one size fits all and that's really our philosophy at COA is we're not going to say exactly the same thing to every person because our relationship to the things we need to work on are really unique. So that's why instead we present an opportunity to use a personal example and work through what we're teaching as it actually relates to you and your life. I think you also described something that I I think about a lot, which is a very common trope in wellness is to tell people just to always trust their gut, just trust your gut. Like it's this perfect source of truth. But what we don't realize is that our gut instinct is trying to tell us what's going to keep us safe. And that instinct is often formed around trauma, not truth. So a person who was bit by a dog when they were young, their gut instinct might be that every dog is dangerous, even though every dog is not dangerous. I think it's also, you know, really a seed of bias when we're told that certain people are dangerous, then our gut instinct might not lead us toward a true representation of those groups of people. So I tell people your gut instinct is an important voice to listen to, certainly, but it is not the only voice that should be on stage. You should also bring in your rational mind to have a conversation with it. Yeah. And I feel like you it with that full circle brought this back to like the beginning of the talking about the people who are like, I'm fine. I don't need to work on my, my mental health because as a therapist, we realize and we learn and we know through training and also experience that the most important part of, of the process isn't, or the question we should be asking isn't whether or not somebody has trauma or whether they don't, because the reality is a lot of us do, it's just different wavelengths of it, but it's, is that, has that been processed? And how has that been processed? What is the meaning we put behind that experience? And for somebody who's like, I'm fine. Like, I don't have any issues with my mental health. I don't need to work on my emotional fitness. I'm fine. My relationships are fine. The people that say that might not know what like jail cell they're living in. Mm. They might not realize that they might be caged in something, but it's just the story that they've been living in their whole life. They don't know what's out there. Yeah. And they don't know what might be possible for them. Like I'm not one to say that every single person absolutely needs therapy, but I am one to say that every single person will benefit from therapy in ways that they might not even know to ask for, because just like every person's going to benefit from exercising a little more, eating healthy, getting enough sleep, you might not even realize that you're tired because you've lived in that state your whole life. And then all of a sudden you start getting good sleep and you have more acuity and more able to focus. And the same is true with emotional health. You don't know what you don't know. There is no one who would not benefit from starting to do that work. Which is interesting because you said when you did this research, you interviewed mental health professionals and then entrepreneurs. Right. Okay. I'm interested in what the idea behind those two groups of people was. Yeah. So I I chose psychologists because I wanted the clinical perspective, you know, from that side of the couch, as I say, what do you see? What kinds of things are you working on with people? How do you know when someone is getting better? And from the entrepreneurial side of things, I was really doing this research originally to figure out how to help people be better leaders. And so I wanted to understand specifically when people look to you to know how they should act in an organization 
what does it look like to be a healthy person for them to look up to? So I wanted to see how much overlap is this? And what we found pretty quickly is that although this information is really important for leaders, it's relevant to everyone because we are all leaders of some kind in our life, whether we're a parent or whether we have friends who look to us or whether we are helping a community or have colleagues who are newer or whatever. There's no one who wouldn't benefit from doing their own work because that work then ripples out and helps everyone around them. Right. Which you can see probably in like large organizations, like what are, what are the traits that the people at the top have? And then what's the level of health of this community? Yes. It's such a clear correlation there for sure. And that I'm like so grateful for this like pursuit because I think a lot of people look at leaders and think they should look a certain way. This is my own bias probably coming out, but it's like, if I were to say, if you were to say what makes a good leader, I would probably say things closer to what you're describing and what you've found. But I don't know if I would have said that if I, when I was like in college, I would have been like, they're strong. They don't care about what other people think. They can make decisions quickly. They don't need to ask for help. Mm. That's what I would have said probably. Well, I think the mental health revolution is happening right now. I think it's becoming clear that these things are really important for us to live the lives we want. And, you know, there are different types of success, but my experience is that to look back and feel really good about what you've done, you've probably prioritized relationships of some kind in your life. And really emotional fitness is all about working on the relationship you have to yourself and the relationship that you have to everyone else in your life. Will you say again what, because I just really liked it, what you said about I'll work on me for you? Oh, sure. Yeah. So in most relationships, we tend to say, I'll take care of you if you'll take care of me. But actually, we believe that instead we should have the mindset of I'll take care of me for you if you'll take care of you for me. And this isn't to say that we shouldn't rely on each other. It means that we are each ultimately responsible for our own satisfaction in our life. And that by claiming that and by committing to working on it, we're doing ourselves a service and we're doing everyone around us a service as well. I wanted to get back to that before we run out of time, just because we just did a series on attachment styles. Mm. And in that, I think that a lot of what's gotten like misconstrued in the past couple, like maybe 10 years, because we've had this like uptake of learning about codependency is that everybody's codependency and that means everything's bad when the reality is we all have like a, a tinge of codependency. But what you're talking about is like, I'll take care of you if you take care of me is like the toxic codependent relationship. But the healthy attachment relationship is what you're describing that you guys are teaching. And I just love that. And, and not to say you shouldn't take care of the people in your life or you shouldn't ask to be taken care of. That's true, too. I think our philosophy is the base layer. Yeah. The, the foundation of our satisfaction in life has to be in our own hands in order to get to where we want to go. And once you are in that relationship of I'm taking care of me, you're taking care of you, then we're going to have the capacity to take care of each other in a totally different way because we have ultimately taken responsibility for ourselves underneath it. A hundred percent. So I could sit here. I have more questions for you, but we're out of time. So I am going to link all of the info in our show notes for anybody who's like, oh, I want to follow Emily or I want to follow Koa or I want to join this or I want to explore this. I'll link it so you can just click on it. Is there anything that you want to express just to uh, encourage people or ways to find you that you want to just say yourself? Well, sure. So if anyone wants to continue the conversation with me, the best place is Twitter. And my handle is Emily Anhalt. 
But if you're ready to come work on your emotional fitness, then we would love for you to head to joincoa, J-O-I-N-C-O-A.com. And actually, I'm going to make a discount code for your community. So if you type in you need therapy into the discount box, then you'll get 15% off any of our series. And we'll be so excited to see you all there. Okay. Amazing. I love this idea. I love normalizing and making it just as important to work on our emotional sides as we do everything else. And do you guys do in person or is it all virtual? We had planned to do in person when COVID hit, we made a pivot. We will eventually do in person again, but for now it's digital so that anyone can join from anywhere. Which makes sense with the world we're living in right now. And I love that anybody can go, but I just have this image of like somebody like walking out of their apartment complex and somebody being like, where are you going? And one person's like, I'm going to cycling class. And the other person Person's like, I'm going to my emotional fitness class. Yes, like, this and that's is just the being normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that dream. I'm here for the yes. dream. And I appreciate this conversation so much. So I'll link everything. Thanks for the discount code. That's of amazing. Of course. Thank you for having me and for everything you're doing to normalize this important work. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 